all of the liberties and the cultural aspects that we love as Christians didn't come from nowhere. There's a reason we've enjoyed them. And what's happened is people have more recently argued that we can have that fruit without the root. And we're saying, no, there's a root undergirding all of it. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Steve Wellam and I are joined by Andy Nacelli for round two of our discussion about Christian nationalism. If you joined us for our last podcast with Andy, you know how he outlined a seven-point taxonomy relating religion to the government. If you haven't listened to those podcasts yet, both the reading and the interview that we did with him, you should. They set up this conversation today, where Steve and I are going to walk through 12 reflections on 12 interviews on Christian nationalism. In his long form, Andy described a dozen reflections to summarize the interviews that we offered on Christian nationalism. And today, we're going to press him to analyze and to prescribe the best way to think about these matters. Yet before jumping in, let me remind you that Christ Overall is looking for friends and churches to partner with us in 2024. As this year comes to a close, and as the series on Christian nationalism comes to a close, we've had many people mention how this ministry has helped them this year. To continue such a ministry in 2024, we are looking for more than 10 churches and 50 individuals who would consider becoming a monthly supporter. Whether that is at $10 or $25 or a couple hundred dollars a month, your pledge for 2024 will help us at Christ Overall secure the resources that we need to continue publishing evergreen articles and podcasts. Think about it, pray about it, and let's work together to exalt Christ in 2024. You can find more information about giving at christoverall.com slash give. For today, the last day of November 2023, we are ready for our last or maybe our second to last swing at Christian nationalism. And so without further ado, we welcome Andy Nacelli back to the podcast. Andy, good to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be with you again, brothers. Yeah, it's good to see that. And there's a little bit of change in the background there. This is now a room that has lifted 1,000 pounds in it. What a feat that was. Yeah. The Lord gave me strength to do some strength training. And uh, earlier this week, uh, he helped me lift 1,000 pounds. That's combined for three That's lifts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're very good. Glad you're here, brother. You've had a, a faithful month, uh, a fruitful month. You've helped us in many ways with these multiple articles on Christian nationalism, and we're looking forward to talking to you about that today. And uh, help me to think through that. Steve Wellam, good to have you back, brother. Good to be with you. Uh, glad to hear you lifted those thousand pounds. You're now Andy Sampson Nacelli. <laughs> My hair is way too short. <laughs> but you are the one that has a beard today, and uh, both Steve and I are, are lacking in the beard. Maybe if we did that, we'd be closer to the Thousand Pound Club. Anyways, well, man, we're looking forward to talking about just some reflections on your reflections on the 12 interviews on Christian nationalism. Of course, for the last month or so, we have been teeing up those conversations with a number of faithful brothers who have been helping us to think about political theology and the relationship between church and state. And your first article looking at the taxonomy between government and religion, and now coming back to reflections on, as you 
counted it out, more than 200 pages of transcript of the conversation that we had. So, Steve, that was a lot of conversations over the course of October, November. It was, and I was on a few of them, and you were on all of them. So uh... <laughs> I was on all of them. Yeah. Uh, my wife heard that. She's like, that is a lot. It's like, yes, it was. <laughs> but we're glad to kind of bring some summary to this and to talk through these things today. So, And you got 12 reflections here, and we're just going to kind of walk through them. But just to begin, there was one kind of pre-reflection that I had just thinking through these conversations. And actually, we're going to have a, a roundtable discussion with some of the guys on Christ Overall coming up. But is it fair to say that some of these brothers are coming from more of a theoretical perspective and others more practicable? It seems that that was one point of the discussion it might be helpful as we think through these things. Like a Stephen Wolf is not seeking to try to change American policies right now. He's thinking more at a theoretical level. And so maybe just to kind of keep in mind as we're having this conversation today, that some of these things are just going back to either Christian tradition or church history or just biblical exegesis, and others are actually trying to engage in the culture today. Is that a fair just kind of dichotomy in the in the conversation? conversations going on? It is. In fact, I could have added a few more reflections, but I tried to make it just 12 to match the 12 interviews. But that is one of them is I think the reflection would say something like this. The interviewees, I'd say they have a range of theological methods. Mm -hmm. So some wanted to start with Bible and work out from there. Others want to start with political philosophy uh, based on biblical principles, but mainly camp out there. Uh, Some are thinking more pastorally. Some are thinking more professors. So yeah, there's a range there. Yeah, I think that's a good thing just to kind of keep in mind. We'll talk about that today. And also just this might be one of the reasons why people have talked past one another and even come to very different conclusions because they're working with different methods there. Steve, if you were to kind of frame this out, even thinking for Christ overall, how would you kind of make an articulation for a political theology? How would I go about doing it myself, you're asking, are you? Yeah, so it's just thinking some, you know, what would be your methodology? Well, I mean, you have to, I mean, it's really an enterprise in, you know, in my view, systematic theology. You know, political theology is a subset of systematics. And so we have to bring together all that scripture says. We have to work through the entirety of the canon to understand nations, state, governments, the role of the church, the role of Israel, covenants. I mean, all of that has to be thought through biblically, theologically, ultimately to a canon. And then we then have to think through uh, natural revelation, uh, general revelation in terms of what we know from uh, political thought and connect it with scripture. So it's a big task of bringing both uh, natural revelation, special revelation together and doing so in light of the particular context that we live. We don't live just in any context is a particular context that we then seek to apply the scriptures to the area that we live and in the world that we live in. So, I mean, that would be broadly how you would have to go about that. So, it's the task of bringing both domains of natural and special revelation together. Yeah, that's good. And anything you would add if you're kind of working on your own political theology, the method you would approach with? No, I, th- I think uh, both Steve and I uh, share the same theological method, which we learned from Don Carson and, and others like that in that same stream. So you basically pick a topic, and the way our brains think is, okay, what has God revealed in Scripture about this? Of course, understanding it in, it, in the flow of redemption history and, and how the covenants relate and all that. But just that's just step one before you start getting constructive. Once you have all the, the puzzle pieces out in front of you, then you start asking questions. Okay, what follows from this and this and this? And how does that fit with that? And if that's how is that not a contradiction? Those are constructive questions as you build. And that's what we're doing in this, this whole conversation. 
Yeah, no, I think that's helpful because, again, even thinking about, you know, we may mention Stephen Wolf quite a bit. He's also written the largest book, but he wasn't doing a political theology. He was doing something in political theory. And so his whole method is very, very different. And I think that would be one of the main distinctions that we would say we have some concerns or questions about how he began his project, maybe not giving enough exegetical detail. And of course, he can make his thesis, he can make his argument in a very robust way. And, you know, we can't fault him on how he's going about it. But when we look at the larger enterprise, we want to begin with the Bible creation to new creation all the way through the categories that are brought with that and of course church tradition and church history will help us to answer questions and to think through these things carefully yeah to be fair to Stephen wolf he told us what he was doing yeah absolutely so yeah. we're just saying as theologians we mm-hmm. want to do more than that yeah that's right yeah well said well andy let's dig into these uh reflections here Starting with reflection number one, interviewees are basically within views four and five in your taxonomy. Of course, you can go and listen to that. We talked about that a little bit before. Refresh us what views four and five are again. View four, religious influence. So the government shouldn't promote just one particular religion. Mm -hmm. At the same time, religion may and should influence the government within limited parameters. And then view five is Christian government. The government and religion overlap. So, uh, not just religious influence here, but the government should actually identify as a Christian government. Yeah. And you said that they were in between those two things, and your next point you'll get into kind of 4.5 and, and all the rest. But you said basically they agree on a handful of things. The government and the church are separate in the sense that they have distinct God-authorized jurisdictions. The public square cannot be religiously neutral. It is a religious battleground. Uh, maybe just pause there for a second. Again, when we think about this lack of neutrality, help us to understand that a bit further. So, Again, I think uh, view three, which I list as examples, John Rawls and Daryl Hart, would think of the government as being a religiously neutral entity. And view four is rejecting that and saying that's impossible. You can't do that. Uh, So view five and view four are lockstep here and recognizing there's no religious neutrality. From there, you go and talk about the church's mission making disciples. Have a, a lengthy quote from from Doug Wilson here. It's interesting. I mean, because he made a case that the church's mission should be for not taking over nations, but for making disciples that are there. In listening to Doug Wilson and just kind of engage with his arguments, what do you think people assign to him that maybe he actually hasn't argued for? Or maybe in listening to him, what might be distinct from how his view of a general equity theonomy may be often perceived? My guess is that and he is distinguishing between the church's mission and then what Christians should be doing. That's a really clear distinction in his mind. And others conflate those. And when they hear him talk about what Christians should be doing, they think, oh, that's what he thinks the church should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so they assume, oh, he thinks that the church's mission is to make a Christian nation, or the church's mission is to have Christian uh, uh, mere Christendom throughout the world. And he said, well, no, uh, the, the mission of the church is simple. And he, he lays it out there. Uh, it sounds like a nine marks quote, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steve, anything that you'd want to add just on this first point here? Any other clarifications? No, I mean, it's helpful to see that all the people we looked at, right, do not hold to that neutrality of the public square. So there's a lot of commonality. And then now the issue becomes, all right, the public square is not neutral. So what in terms of Christian, uh, in terms of law, 
you know, the role of government, the role of the church, how, what does that actually look like? And now you have to put flesh and bones onto the specifics of it. But once we put aside the reality that uh, there is no neutral square, the, we have to, everyone's operating with some notion of law. Uh, we then then have to get to the specifics and what that looks like. Yeah. And that's probably a good segue just to the second reflection here, thinking about the interviews disagree on whether it would be good to have a Christian government. Again, you're thinking about the two different views there. Andy, spell out the differences on on how people are perceiving this goodness or the lack thereof of a Christian government. Yeah. And I I might want to tweak something here. So for view four, uh, the government should neither exclusively promote a particular religion nor restrict the spread of false religious beliefs, nor adopt a policy on the basis of Christian beliefs, nor institutionalize Christianity. And the the view five, the Christian government would reject all four of those and say, no, the government uh, may do all those activities. But I have an asterisk to add here. This is based (laughs) off of some texts and uh, uh, exchanges with Jonathan Lehman this week, our friend Jonathan Lehman. I love this guy. That third I list there, adopt a policy on the basis of Christian beliefs. He told me this week, actually, I think that is okay, and that he didn't think that is a faithful way to represent his view. So I just want to clarify that publicly. I was not trying to misrepresent Jonathan at all. I think the reason I used that phrasing was something that Andrew Walker said. He gave the illustration somewhere in writing or in text that imagine a U.S. senator who's a Christian is arguing for a policy position. When he as an individual is making that case, he can do so with his Christian convictions, you know, on his sleeve, but that the government, if they adopt that policy, may not do so in that same way. They have to do so in, in a religiously pluralistic environment with natural law, et cetera. And Jonathan was just clarifying, uh, I, he would not argue that way. So not everyone in V4 would say it exactly like that. I think, I think most would. Mm-hmm. Did I muddy the waters for you? <laughs> No, I think what you did was to, to recognize that there are different shades in between view four and view five, and that it's not one monolithic position. I mean, the taxonomy is helpful because it kind of gives a lay of the land. But even again, I think this is hopefully generates further conversation to be more specific to say, this is what I mean. This is not what I mean. And to be able to be clear in that, because even in the what you bring up later is that those like Kevin DeYoung, Tom Askell and Albert Moeller might be more of a 4.5, right, where they might not be right exactly in between. So what's the difference in that that middle group? Yeah, and just to clarify, I did ask Tom Askell and Kevin DeYoung directly what they thought of my framing it as. These guys are fours, these guys are fives. I think you guys are 4.5s. And both Kevin and Tom said, yeah, I think that's right. So what I was sensing is that uh, neither uh, DeYoung nor Askell nor Moeller fit as well in view four or five, there's like, they're part four, part five, there's somewhere in between. And the reason is that they talk about a Christian government in some sense that the more fully view four folks don't, but they're not all the way on view five. Uh, like when, when Albert Muller talked about acknowledging the first table and enforcing the second, that's not view four, that's something more. Uh, so there's, there's something more uh, that these guys are talking about. The way Kevin DeYoung talks about the the theoretical, it's a the thought experiment. If you start a new colony somewhere, how would you how would you set up your government? And the way he would set up his government, it's really close to a view five, if not a view five. 
Well, yeah, I just think that's helpful clarification on on view four, because when I was reading it saying uh, the government should neither, and then you have exclusively promote a particular religions, restrict the spread of false religions, institutionalize Christianity. There we really have the, you know, the avoidance of the establishment of right. Christianity as the official religion, but then to adopt a policy, not to adopt a policy on the basis of Christian beliefs, that, that would seem to move us this position into position three, as if somehow the public square could be neutral there is no neutral space so that even if we argue uh, as andrew walker does say towards natural law even natural law is a christian belief right? i mean that's that's grounded in a christian theology uh, if one argues for the separation of powers that's based upon not enlightenment rationalism or enlightenment view of humans it's based upon christian view of the depravity of human individuals so that uh, there may not be the you know, quoting of Bible and, and uh, chapter and verse on this, yet uh, to even argue for certain features of natural law and to argue for the human depravity and so on are all based upon Christian beliefs, right? So view four would have to have uh, Christian beliefs at work. Uh, otherwise, they would be put, you know, in a different category, three and or some other category. And I think the other thing to think about, even in a view five, if you're going to have a, a Christian government, well, then if you're allowing the scriptures to dictate that, it's not just Christians who are then forcing themselves on others, but actually a Christian view of government would actually be a limited government. Right. Right. I mean, this is one of the things that is comes throughout Rush Dooney's work quite a bit is the need for a limitation on the government that is there. Uh, and I think... Doug Wilson would make that same argument, too. So even if you move to a position five, it's not to say that it's moving to a totalitarian state led by Christians, but rather they would even recognize the need for limited governments so that free markets and freedom could be worked its way out in the in the culture. Yeah, in fact, in fact, you want to argue, I think I would want to argue strongly that uh, it's actually on the basis of Christian beliefs and Christian theology that we actually have a free state. So it's, it's when you don't have Christian views that you get totalitarianism, right? We're actually allowing for freedom of viewpoint because our very beliefs are not, say, Islamic, which says that people are converted by the sword, is they're converted by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the spirit and regeneration and, and, and so on. So, yeah, you, Christian beliefs would inform our government. The big question is, is what do we call it? Do we call it explicitly Christian? Is it similar to the church? And those distinctions must come in. My guess is that what distinguishes 4.5 from 5 is that the 4.5s want a very limited government, and the 5s talk about government in a more broad, expansive way. Now, not not all the time, but that seems to be the case where it's the size. Now, if you talk to Doug Wilson, he'll say, no, I want a very limited government. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you involve the government in restricting blasphemy, for example— it's hard to imagine a limited government being able to do that. Yeah, and of course, Timon would also talk about the place of coercion, and coercion not through threats as much as the coercion of the law. I mean, anytime you put a law on the books, it's going to be coercive in a sense. And so if you're putting in certain laws, blasphemy laws being one of them, then it certainly would have that impact on the, the citizenship and the legislation there in that place. One other question, just on this point, I'm wondering if these views may be altered or impacted by just some current events. Oh, yeah. Right? One of the current events that I'm thinking of since October 7th 
the terrorist act of Hamas into Israel, and then even the the pro-Palestinian events that have been taking place in America on college campuses and city streets and all the rest. It seems as though there's this rise of Islamic power. And in places like London, there is just the willingness to just let them do what they're going to do and not to, to stand against that. And I'm just wondering if the rise of Islamic force is going to say, actually, the only thing that's going to keep Islam from having some sort of authority, some sort of influence is actually for Christians, not to come back in kind, but to be able to say, actually, the freedom, Steve, as you just said a moment ago, the freedoms that we've had in our country are actually not from the Enlightenment alone, but are from Christian principles. And therefore, we need to have Christian ideas, Christian law, Christian influence to be impacting public square and policies. Any thoughts on just how the last few months have gone and how that could impact the way that Christians, biblically thinking Christians, might change their views on these things? Yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, I think with Hamas, it it reveals uh, the problem with, say, uh, view number three, right? There is no naked public square, right? So somebody's view is going to have influence. And uh, when you have Islam saying, we want this place and you must follow our rules and regulation, I mean, what's going to be the pushback? There has to be another view of law. And ultimately, we would argue a Christian view that pushes back on that and says, no, this is not correct. And this will not produce a just humane society, it will ultimately lead to its destruction, right? So you're seeing competing views of law. Uh, you see that also with the, the secular uh, state as well, where it it is a totalitarian regime as well, and it demands total allegiance. So, you know, you've got competing views of law. That's why even we'll get down later to the theonomy discussion, you know, the theonomy can mean many things to many people, but at, at one sense, just in the basic definition of it, you know, we are following God's law. I mean, in some sense, every Everyone does that, right? So you have to give specificity to what you mean by that and the fleshing out of that. So what we're seeing in our day, it reveals that uh, you have to have a standard for law. You have to have a ground for it. And that's why we're saying as Christians, we can't have a neutral public square. We have to bring God's word to bear and God's law to bear on our society. Yeah, one example of how someone in View 5 would argue based on political events. We're recording this on November 30th. This morning, Joe Boot tweeted regarding what's happening in London. He said, these are supposedly British citizens openly calling for the blood of Jews while the police do nothing. Time to wake up and understand if you reject Christ and his lordship, religious worldviews with the love of death, take his place, the crescent or the cross. That's a pretty compelling argument given what's happening. Yeah. 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 So I think what we need to remember, and this leads into reflection three, is that religious liberty that has been such a a gift to Western society, certainly in America, didn't uh, emerge from a secular vacuum. Right. In so many ways that that is a fruit. Maybe it's downstream. Maybe it's fused with some enlightenment ideas, but a fruit from Christian principles. And certainly that gets to the third reflection. And that is that the interviewees agreed that America had a Christian founding. Uh, and I think that's pretty undeniable. Mark David Hall has certainly been the one who has done the, the great research to help us to think about that. Andy, anything to add on that? Or is that just basically an agreed upon fact and say, we need to not shy away from that. We need to remember that. Uh, and that plays a part in maybe how we think about today. Right. I could have stated it as a disagreement that the interviewees disagree whether America was ever a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. But I emphasize the agreement aspect both ways, uh, whether you think it was a Christian nation or not, 
all of them agree there's a Christian founding. And I think that's significant because all of the the liberties and the cultural aspects that we love as Christians didn't come from nowhere. There, there's a reason we've enjoyed them. And what's happened is people have more recently argued that we can have that fruit without the root. And we're saying, no, there's a root undergirding all of it. That's good. Reflection four, the interview is know what time it is. So looking at First Chronicles 12, verse 32 of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And of course, Luke 12, 56, Jesus rebuking the crowds, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Do you think everybody's on the same page there? Uh, or do you think there is a, a f- different levels of uh, perception on what's going on? As best I could discern, mm-hmm. all of the people you interviewed would recognize it's really bad right now. It's worse than it's ever been in our country, and we need to talk about this. Now, whether it's a you know a four-alarm or five-alarm fire, okay, there might be a, a, a gradation there. But I didn't get the sense that, oh, yeah, we're in positive world. Everything's okay. You're overreacting. I didn't hear anyone say that. Yeah. It's interesting. There could be a lot of unity around if it wasn't Christian nationalism, if it was just anti-secularism right. or something like that, right? right? That there's all the, the enemy is the same. And it's been interesting because I think Christian nationalism has been a term, and we'll get to this in a little bit, a term that has been thrown into evangelical spaces, reformed evangelical spaces, and now we've turned on one another to fight with one another when really the enemies are outside of that. And the enemies are not just flesh and blood. Right, There are are spiritual powers and principalities that would love for confusion and division to be among Christians, and yet Christians more than ever need to work together to be able to oppose so many of the evils that are encroaching upon families, churches, individuals in our nation. Preach. Yeah. Five, the interviewees agree that Christian culture in a society is good, right? So you list off Kevin DeYoung here in particular. Is there concern for cultural Christianity or nominalism? So that's, what is nominalism, nominal Christianity, and and why do some have a concern about that when we begin to hear this language of cultural Christianity? The way I like to illustrate this is with the TV show Andy Griffith. I think Russell Moore may have said something about Mayberry, living in Mayberry versus today. And there's something about Mayberry that's really attractive, if if you're familiar with that show where it's just an old town, small town, uh, everyone knows everybody. But it's not a Christ-centeredness. There's not gospel there. The, even the church scenes are pathetic. There's, there's no clear gospel. So is that going to you know get people to heaven? No, obviously. But I would rather my family live in that kind of cultural environment than in downtown Chicago, for example. That's just why. I, well, one is safer, more wholesome, Yes, it doesn't save you per se, but it's a soil in which the real thing can flourish. First Timothy 2 tells us we're supposed to pray for peace for the sake of the spread of the gospel. So many people have in their heads that, no, no, to be faithful, we need to be persecuted and, and we have to you know, be like you know, the persecuted church in China. Like, that's the ideal. And that's not the ideal. God will give you grace in those times, but the ideal is peace. 
You mentioned downtown Chicago. So I have family that planted a church there maybe 40 years ago, maybe 50 years, no, probably 40 years ago. And the church was there in a block and was very, very crime ridden when it got there. And just it faithfully continued to preach the gospel, influence the community and the community around it began to change, right? It began to have light and impact. Obviously the mission of the church was to make disciples to preach the gospel, but it had impact on the neighborhood. And there are some other things that are taking place, even just the relationship of that pastor and a few other pastors to some of the local leaders at that point in time. And so there was change that was taking place there. But more recently in that same area, I have other members of our family who, who minister in that area. And some of the decisions were to release a number of gang members back into the city streets and instantly the crime went up. I mean, gunfire where they're having to dive into their home in order to be safe from bullets that are whizzing past uh, their cars and all the rest. And it's like, it really does have an impact. So the mission of the church is to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, but you plant churches in a soil and in a place that is either going to be hostile and with war-torn or have more peace. And certainly a place that has more peace is going to be able to maintain a ministry of the gospel and a church in a way that warfare and violence is not. And so it does seem, to your point, that a cultural element, a Christian culture, certainly makes peace possible so that churches can be planted. Yeah, and of course, we've seen that in our you know, our history. And, and of course, well, always the danger of that is that we, we take that for granted, right? And we, we assume that this is just normal instead of this comes as a result of the preaching of the gospel, the mission of the church, uh, the secondary tertiary benefits of the gospel. And I mean, in some sense, our, our history in this nation is we've lived off the borrowed capital uh, and the effects of Christianity. And of course, uh, we've been oblivious at the same time to what's going on around us. And of course, now now, when it gets to a, a breaking point, we are suddenly waking up and realizing, oh, my goodness, what happened? All of those Christian, uh, you know, results and impact and fruit and all that now is being whittled away. And now you're seeing the full effects of it. So for people to say that the influence of the gospel, the influence of Christianity, uh, particularly even in the West, with all, you know, with all of its problems, we, it hasn't been perfect. We all know that. But to say that that is not good and that hasn't benefited society and so on, they're out of their minds. I mean, they know nothing of what it li- means to live in another part of the world where this is, you know, Christianity hasn't had its effect. Um, I mean, even as we speak of religious liberty and so on, I mean, those are all a result of not, uh, secularism doesn't produce that. And so does non-Christian religion doesn't produce that. It's only Christianity that produces that, the protection of other people and religions and, and building of hospitals and so on. So, the Christian culture has produced that which is very good, yet uh, our always constant danger is taking it for granted. Yeah, that was certainly a point that uh, that Tom Askell brought up, that we haven't done enough to kind of sow seeds into the church or to make down payments into the church. We've been withdrawing from things from our past, especially I think maybe in Baptist churches, and the need for that today is one of the reasons why we've had this series and trying to just encourage churches to continue to teach people to think about these things uh, along the way. And, and perhaps one of the confusions that comes out here is this word Christian, right? It shouldn't be a confusing word, but is Christian only to be a noun, speaking of a born-again believer, or can it be used as an adjective, right? Because one of the debates that has gone on is talking 
talking about a Christian home or a Christian school, a Christian church, a Christian nation. And some have wanted to fuse those two words together of a Christian nation, have had concerns about that. How do you guys take that language of just using Christian as a an adjective, what might be challenging about speaking that way, or or how would you use that language to describe a Christian home, Christian school, Christian nation? Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful how we use it, right? So obviously with the Christian noun, we're speaking about people who truly have been brought by God's grace to a knowledge of Christ. They've seen their sin. They've been born of the Spirit. They've been united to Christ. They've been justified. Uh, they are are His people, right? So that that's what we want. But of course, as an adjective, we you think even of the home, right? Uh, Christian um, husband and wife. They have children. Those children aren't Christians by birth, right? They are fallen, uh, you know, children, uh, babies as grow up and we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we have a Christian home in the sense of adjective, in the sense that we are there as Christian parents to teach them, uh, to train them in the scriptures, to pray for them, to bring them to the preaching of God's word and to the, 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 the church and so on. So that by God's grace, they come to be Christians in the noun sense. So we're using the adjective in that influence sense. So even in a Christian family, uh, that doesn't make everyone Christian in it. And the same with the nation, right? So if we're using it in the influence sense, I think that's fine. If we then say Christian nation in the noun sense, we're then confusing that with the reality of the church. There's an article my friend Joe Rigney wrote back in 2022 for Nine Marks. It's called Identity or Influence, a Protestant Response to Jonathan Lehman. I don't know if you guys remember this article, but he, he says in there that the term Christian family makes sense, for, like Steve just said, for the same reason Christian school does, because it identifies the content of instruction, norms, and expectations in that institution. It says, here's a family or a school in which Christianity will be promoted and taught, the norms and rules will be derived from and consistent with the scriptures, and the Bible will be our ultimate authority. And so I think that's right and fine to do. We do it all the time when we talk about Christian radio stations or that's what we mean by it. And I think uh, that's a, a legitimate way to use English language and that's very understandable and not confusing. Yeah, and you can see how that language, though, is going to be shaped by an understanding of the covenants. Right, so a Christian church that is a Presbyterian church, which I know is a polity more than, but if it's covenant understanding of the children who are part of that covenant community, a Christian church is going to have believers and their children. Some of those children won't be regenerate in a way that will be distinct from a Baptist church that would be ideally a regenerate church membership that is there. And so even the way that that language is being used could be one of the reasons why that when you extend that on, some might be less comfortable saying a Christian nation because not every single person in the nation, a citizen is a Christian, whereas someone who would see a church as being in the covenant, those children who are part of that covenant, there might be more flexibility of using that term. I think to the point you just made, Andy, I would be comfortable speaking of a nation that is influenced by Christianity, a Christian nation. Certainly, you have nations historically that are that way, uh, and the influence that is there. But you can see how even local church experience or local church beliefs can shape that language as well. Yeah, that's a point we'll have to come back to over and over again, right, is that uh, the hesitation to apply 
Christian in terms of the noun to the nation uh, is tied to one's understanding of, of the covenants, what the new covenant is. I mean, and then it gets bound up with Christian family. Hey, no problem with Christian family. But if you're working with a reformed covenantal understanding, that notion of your children is a little different than uh, there is within a, a Baptist understanding, even though we both view those children as gifts of God, that they need to hear the gospel, they need to come to saving faith. They're still viewed differently depending on one's understanding of the covenant. Yeah, and this is the point that Scott Aniel uh, has made in some of the things that he's written, that the New Testament does define what a holy nation is. It's the church, right? The royal priesthood holy nation is is found in the church. And so there is, if he's just thinking that biblical theological categories and moving from type to anti-type, from, you know, the nation of Israel to the true Israel in Christ and the new Israel in the church, there is a sense in which the church is that holy nation. But I don't think that absolutely then has to deny the fact that there are nations nations today, and that biblically speaking, they may be more or less influenced by Christianity, and that's how that language is being used. All right, let's talk about number six. The interviewees basically agree on the strategy of what faithful Christians should do right now. So Andy, this is where you close your article as well, and just an encouragement on just being faithful. What would you want to kind of flesh out for us here from point six? The main takeaway here is when you say, So what should we do based on our beliefs? Both views four and five sound identical. Mm -hmm. It's like, given our our framing of the situation, therefore, let's live this way. And they line up. So what I take away from that is there's a lot of overlap, and the overlap is really good. And that's encouraging. Well, and this has got to be the place, too, where we can say we can learn from others who we may have fundamental disagreements with on covenant theology. We can learn from others and even how they might articulate themselves. I think those who would gladly take the name Christian nationalist and those who would oppose it would still agree all of the imperatives that you give here of being a faithful Christian today. Uh, And I think we can learn from others in that space and actually be unified in that far more than we can be at odds with one another. All right, let's talk about number seven. The interviewees disagree on how to talk about the Ten Commandments with reference to political theology. Steve, we were talking about this yesterday. What is your concern about using the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, for these discussions? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we want to use all of Scripture, including the Decalogue. I think what's going on in the discussion, and maybe this is why there is some of talking past one another, and and Andy doesn't has done a great position here of laying out four positions on this, and we'll let him uh, address some of those positions. But I think position one and two, he he has here. Position one, Christians should not tie their view on the Ten Commandments tightly to their political theology, and he uses Andrew Walker as a case of that. In position two, the government should enforce only the second table. I think those positions are probably closer and, and to one another, not sort of a separate positions. And I think what's underneath it is uh, much of the covenantal understanding of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the tripartite use of the law the Decalogue as reflecting uh, eternal moral law. And in much of Reformed theology, it also reflects natural law as well. So that if it's natural law, then of course one has to be able to apply it 
by nature, right, to all people, all places, all times. And others are seeing, wait a second here. Yes, there's a lot of truth in that. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue reflects the love of God, love of neighbor. It ties to creation order structures, marriage, um, protection of marriage, not adultery, not murder, uh, not theft, not stealing, and all those areas that would be tied to creation order. Yet, in the scripture, it's part of the old covenant. It's part of the Mosaic uh, covenant. That Mosaic covenant as a whole, not just in part, but as a whole has come to fulfillment. We then apply all of the scripture to us in light of its fulfillment in Christ so that there are things that are natural law, but they're not necessarily one for one with the Ten Commandments. That's where we get into Sabbath debates and 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 so on in terms of their application to today. So so there's still assumptions underneath here and the use of the Decalogue. We have to be careful that we're not already assuming a certain position of threefold division of the law. The Decalogue reflects eternal natural law. Some of those questions still have to be hammered out and addressed. Even though when all is said and done, I mean we look to the uh, the Decalogue as giving us basic sense of creation order structures and so on right so that's that still is at debate and i think it still looms under the surface and it also is some of the reasons why some people will say no 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 no, we can't apply this or we can't appeal to the decalogue others say yes we can we can appeal to both the first order second uh, table and so on so steve for you would you want to start then in genesis 1 and 2 and begin to kind of think of creation order and just, again, work out the text of Scripture, placing the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20 into the covenant with Moses as something that is both building off of the Abrahamic covenant, Abrahamic covenant that is seeking to restore what was lost in the fall, and then also typological of things that will be forthcoming with David and the new covenant. Is that how you'd be wanting to work that out? Yeah, it would be, right? So, so you know, practically, there's going to be a lot of agreement, right? So, we have to be very, very careful. We're not giving the impression that we're giving some different concept of moral law. Uh, we're rejecting moral law. We're not doing, I'm not doing any of that. Yet, I do think as we work biblically through the canon, and then we have to draw theological conclusions from that, I would be more um, grounding things in creation order. Now, it happens to be that the Decalogue does reflect much of creation order. But even as uh, Andy has here Jonathan Lehman's uh, observation, even from the second table of not coveting, well, that's that's uh, an internal issue, isn't it? I mean, how does one enforce the second table of the law? How do you enforce coveting, right? It, what that's reflecting, I think, is that the Decalogue is given to the covenant people of God uh, as an entire package that in the plan of God, it's grounded in creation. It goes back to Adam, no doubt. It builds on the Abrahamic and so on, but it reaches its fulfillment in the new covenant. So there's a bit more complication of what we, how we define moral law, how we ground it in creation, what actually constitutes moral natural law, such as Sabbath laws and coveting and, and these areas, and then its application. So that's where there are some disagreements on that. So that's why I think Andrew Walker will say, I would not want to say we base our understanding on the natural law and the Decalogue that could be taken as well. What are you talking about? Isn't isn't the Decalogue natural law? I think what he's doing there is saying the Decalogue is part of a covenant. It's not necessarily one for one with what we would identify as natural law tied to creation order. 
So Andy, the two positions Steve mentioned, and then the third has to do with really kind of Albert Moeller's position of acknowledging the first table and then enforcing the second, and the fourth position of enforcing the full uh, first and second table. Of course, talking to Jonathan Lehman a little bit about this, in some ways that's an arbitrary division between the first table and the second table. How would you understand those ideas uh, of how the, the law is being used today or should be used today? Well, first off, I don't think the distinction is totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. The idea that you can summarize the commandments as vertical and horizontal fits with love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Uh, it's a way to sum up all of the commandments. So I, I do think there's good reasons to say there are two categories for these Ten Commandments and all the, the regulations. But I don't think that's your question. Your question is more, how do I think about the Ten Commandments with reference to political theology? Yeah, absolutely. I like what position four says here. Uh, This is what proponents of U5 say, that we should promote the natural law as much as prudently possible. I'm guessing Andrew Walker would say the same thing. Uh, So the, the issue is, do the Ten Commandments summarize the natural law? That is the Reformed position historically. And the Reformed position historically has seen a threefold division of the of the law and the moral civil ceremonial. That's something that we as progressive covenantalists do not hold to. Uh, we think the, the law stands or falls as a, as a whole unity. That we can't slash it up and divide it and this, this stays and that doesn't. So I do think that that full view five depends on a reformed, like capital R reformed view of the law, which I don't hold. But I think the gist of what it's trying to co- uh, communicate, the natural law, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's why I, I, I lean towards this view. I would just uh, explain its relation to the covenants differently than most Reformed folks. Yeah. For you, just one last point, thinking about the natural law, would you ground that also in created order, finding that yeah. in Genesis 1 and 2, and then working oh, yeah. from there? Yes. Yeah. And, and one way, I'd, like when we talk about the Ten Commandments, like the, the Sabbath laws, I say the, the created order is it's a work six, rest one. It's not this particular day in perpetuity, and you have to treat it just like the Israelites under the Mosaic Law Covenant. Yeah. So I, I would treat the Sabbath differently. Very fair. Let's talk about number eight, uh, Reflection 8. The interviews disagree on how to define good and bad in Romans 13.3. So Romans 13.3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So the question becomes, what does good and bad mean there? You have two positions here, I believe. Uh, one that is related to kind of a, a civil or a civic understanding of that, and the other one that is rooted back in what the scriptures have said. Help us to unpack those two positions and then give us again, how would you take it? You, you've spent quite a bit of time in Romans. How would you yeah. understand what's going on? So position one would say that good and bad refer to what the non-Christian rulers recognized as civic good deeds and civic bad deeds. And the second position would say, it's just what God says is good and bad. And the the argument that's most compelling for that first position is the way that uh, Jonathan Lehman expresses it, is you have to understand commands like this in their context. And since the context is these are commands to civic rulers, civic government, therefore it's just within that jurisdiction, so that that this kind of hedges, hems in what this can refer to. And I'm looking at the text in its context, and uh, I think that Romans 13.1 is one of the worst chapter breaks in the history of chapter breaks. I hate chapter breaks. I wish we just had no chapter breaks. But uh, chapter Romans 12 and 13 are a single unit, and especially 12.9, 
uh, from there on, it's talking about uh, loving what is good, hating what is bad. That's the whole context for chapter 12. You get to the end of 12 and it says, don't take vengeance. And then it flips it to the government should take vengeance. So that it's, it's all related. And there are all these different lexical and thematic uh, connections between the end of 12 and beginning of 13. And the words good, bad, evil are used consistently throughout. So it would be odd to me that the words good and bad in the beginning of 13 don't match what good and bad refer to elsewhere. Further, some would say that later in chapter 13, where Paul mentions several of the Ten Commandments, they're all from the second table. Therefore, that tells us that the civic government can enforce only the second table type commandments. But there's this, there's this phrase that I haven't heard the people who take that position explain, and that's in uh, Romans 13, 8 to 10. It says, and any other commandment. <laughs> that kind of includes everything else, doesn't it? So to say it's yeah, just second yeah. table doesn't work. So I, I'm more inclined to say that the words good and bad refer to what God says is good and bad. Yeah, and just as I'm reading position one here, I'm just reminded, it, it's, it's mildly, mildly naive, I mean, that may not be the right way to put it, to say that in the context of a nation that doesn't re- recognize God, that they're uninfluenced by various views of good and evil, right? As if to say that there is an agreed upon standard of good and evil in a civic sense. It still seems that, that in an Islamic nation, their definition of good and evil is going to be different than in a pagan nation and different than a Hindu nation, different than a nation influenced by Christianity. You have to go to Islamic nations. Stay right here. Uh, we have public officials who are saying that transgender mutilation is good, and to oppose that is bad. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. And, and I think this was one of the debates, Romans 13 in particular, in 2020, right, of how to be able to take this. And does the state, because it has authority to pronounce good and evil, do we have to submit to them? Or can we actually ask the question, do they actually know what good and evil is? And this does seem to be one of the things that uh, Al Mohler brought up in our conversation, that the church does have a prophetic witness, a public witness to say to the magistrate, this is what good is, this is what evil is. And whether you're taking that from natural law, an argument Andrew Walker is using, or from scripture, and I would say that scripture is a place to be used there, that there's still a need for the Christians to be able to say, this is what good and evil are, and it's necessary for us to make that proclamation and not just assume that those in power know what good and evil are. I think it was appropriate, for example, for John MacArthur recently to address Gavin Newsom directly uh, regarding his misuse of Scripture. Uh, that was appropriate. Yeah. Steve, anything to add here? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I don't think we should. I mean, position one, it's hard to know uh, how that gets worked out in terms of civic good and bad, right? I still think in the, that position, they're still going to say what's what's of in the context of what the role of the government to uphold what is good and bad in terms of the civic order would still apply to what God says is good. So they're not going to deny that. It's not just arbitrary to the society. Now, if they're arguing that, then of course, I think they're, that would be a wrong position. But I think uh, from the Lehman quote here, it seems to be that he's just concerned that to uphold what is good is done within the domain and jurisdiction of that government, right? So as it's put in the context here of the family or classroom or pilot, it's also put in the context of, of government. But we just want to make sure we don't cast positions as if they're not saying that uh, they would not be saying there's a standard of God's 
God's word that gives us that standard of good. So that would have to provide probably a bit more clarification on that. I think most of the people that we've talked to would still say God's law still applies, but it has a limited jurisdiction. The government has a limited jurisdiction and so on. That would be more my, my view here. I would say the good here is defined by God. Uh, so this, that would be the position too. But then the role of the government is to uphold what is good in terms of their domain and jurisdiction. I agree with that. Yep. Yeah, so you're getting more just at the sphere sovereignty issue at that mm-hmm. point and thinking mm-hmm. through right. that. Yeah. Yeah. So then it goes back to issues of, say, created order, right? So what's the role of our government, right? To uphold the good, to uphold the family, to uphold heterosexual marriage, to uphold uh, the sanctity of human life, to uphold private property, to uphold, you know, all those things that I think would be tied to, you know, it, it comes out of the Decalogue, but also it's tied uniquely to creation order that the Decalogue ultimately reflects as well. Mm-hmm. And when a government doesn't do that, uh, such as our own, it is immoral and wicked. Reflection nine, the interviewees disagree on whether the label Christian nationalism is helpful. And so I think each of these brothers have kind of taken a different posture on that. Andy, what, what's your take as you kind of sifted through all these things? Are you a Christian nationalist? Do you like that language? <laughs> Do you want to use something else? Is there a different neologism that you've come up with? I don't use a label personally because it's, people mean different things by it. And most of them think of something that's really bad. Yeah. So I don't think it's helpful if you're trying to win people over to a position. Labels aren't what most concern me. It's the position behind the label. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd rather, just like in certain contexts, I'm not going to start with, I'm a Calvinist. I'm going to explain my position. And then at the end, I'll say, now, traditionally, this is called Calvinism. But if I just start with the label, I lose over half of the listeners usually. That's been my experience in the classrooms and church contexts. So similarly here, if you just start with, I'm a Christian nationalist, I think you're going to get immediately branded as a wacko, as a crazy, and you won't be able to influence. Uh, so I'd rather just, I don't have the perfect label to give you in its place. And I'm sympathetic with people who use the label, uh, like, uh, like the way that Doug Wilson explains, that makes sense. But I haven't found it compelling enough to describe myself with that label. Steve, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, uh, if if defined properly and Christians used as it's supposed to be here as an adjective and and nation properly understood nation, fine. But that's just not how it's being put together as an entire expression. And uh, we want uh, you know clear communication with people, and we don't want automatically to sh- I mean, eventually people are going to shut us down anyway. But we don't want that done right from the outset without even getting hearing. Uh, so I think we have to probably come up with some better terminology. I don't know what it is, but uh, Christian nationalism, I think, is fraught with with a lot of baggage. Yeah, I think I can respect those like a Doug Wilson who is going to take that label and then define it in three minutes. I think, again, both of what you said, I would say the same thing. I don't think that's the, the most helpful way to go about doing that. I mean, ultimately, we want to be biblical, right? And so when we think about the Bible, the Bible affirms nations. Uh, it affirms the boundaries that God has put in place, that God is sovereign over all the nations. And he affirms the church. Uh, and so, you know, biblical nationalist, I don't know if that's the right way to do it. At least you get to find it's the Bible. Um, so I'm not trying to add anything new. Christian nationalish, something, whatever the case may be, I'm not sure there's a great term for it, but to say whatever the Bible says about the church and the state, about government religion, I mean, those are things that we want to, to embrace. And I think Al Mohler's right. If we just believe in men and women, if we just believe in anything Christian, we're going to be labeled all sorts of things, including Christian nationalists right now. 
Yeah, we need to see and be called back to the mission of the church, right? The mission of the church, I mean, obviously, we're to make disciples, we're to glorify God. The church also has a prophetic voice, and the church must stand and say to the government that we are under, and we live in the United States, so it's under our present government, this is what God says your responsibilities are. This is what you are to do what's right. This is what is wrong, and and we have remained silent too long, and whether you call that a Christian nationalism or so on, the church must wake up and Christians individually in their workplaces, societies, school areas, you know, local meeting places and so on must make their voices known. Yeah, well said. Well, Reflection 10, the interviewees who fit within View 5 do not put most of the load-bearing weight for their view on post-millennialism or theonomy. Steve, what are your thoughts on that? I know you did some reading on uh, Kenneth Gentry in some of your classes this fall. What are your thoughts on, on this point? I agree with Andy and his assessment there, because that's what they obviously are saying, right? They're saying that their their position five is not tied to post-mill, but it's not accidental that that many in that position five are post-mill, right? So, so it's not dependent upon it, but it certainly gives an impetus for it, right? Now, if one is not post-mill, could one hold to view five? Yes, people do, right? So it's still... I mean, it's still a factor. Uh, it still gives reasons for hope. It still gives reasons for what they think then the gospel, um, the mission of the church is, is to make nations Christian. I mean, that seems to be a post-mill view, which would fit well with View 5. So post-mill fits well with View 5, even though one doesn't necessarily have to be that. And then the theonomy issue is, is again, is tricky, isn't it? Because uh, if we use theonomy in some old sense of Christian reconstructionism and so on. And even then you go back and look at Rushduni and so on, and, and you begin to realize that people sometimes have caricatured his position. But the you know, theonomy position, I, I think there that in some sense we're all theonomists. Yet we then have to define what kind of theonomists we are and what kind of jurisdiction the, the, the government has and the role of the church and, 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 and so on, right? So, uh, and then when you look at Stephen Wolf, you'll say, well, I'm not a theonomist. I'm not a post-mill. But uh, he is referring to the 16th century reformers, which, you know, as they looked at the role of church and state and so on, you could probably classify it in a kind of theonomy direction, right? So if he's going back historically and recovering them, in some sense, he's recovering what people have viewed broadly as at least general equity theonomy and, and, and so on. So he's trying to avoid the label for avoiding some kind of stigma of it. I, I don't know if that's possible to avoid. Yeah, he's drawing his sources from the same well, right? So if you read even Joe Boot, I mean, Joe Boot is, you know, going to Rush Dooney and he's going to the Puritans. If you go to Rush Dooney, he's going to the Puritans. If you're going back to that 16th century, 17th century, that's where those guys are drawing their ideas from. And that's the place that uh, Steve Wolf is doing the same. So that, that source is going to be is going to be the same. Well, and then in the 16th century, I mean, a lot of the assumption at that point was was tied to a larger covenant theology, and covenant theology was also developing. But there was a lot of parallels with Christendom, with uh, and, and something analogous to the nation of Israel. Covenant theology drew those connections between Israel church. That is undergirding the larger political implications. And so I think even a Stephen Wolford says, well, I'm not one of this. As, as you said, the well that they're drawing from already is there, right? So, so it's influencing things much more than sometimes they want to admit. It's probably a good way to 
segue to Reflection 11. Interviews disagree on whether some nations, other than Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant may be in covenant with God. Again, Andy, you have kind of two positions here, those kind of for and against. Help us to understand this position. Yeah, this is relatively new to how I've thought about nations. So Doug Wilson and Joe Boot argue that nations may be in a covenant with God, and they highlight this uh, league of solemn league and covenant that the UK is under, and now to some degree Canada and Australia, and I think Wilson says in a more oblique way the United States. That's part of like, what is that oblique way? How was America under a covenant? I don't. Steve, you're from Canada. Can you help us understand this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Canada is part of the British Commonwealth. I mean, the British Commonwealth set itself up as Israel. Hmm. I mean, uh, you had a church state. I mean, there was a separation of it, but mm-hmm. my goodness, there was quite a, a wedding. I mean, we just saw that in the coronation of, of King Charles. I mean, you could not have a closer picture of what happened in that coronation to what happened in Israel. He functions as a kind of Davidic king. So, I mean, yeah, again, that's the, that's the larger point from the previous one is that there's this larger covenant theology that's undergirding this. And uh, so I think Wilson and Boot and others are coming out of that frame. And we'd have to then ask whether it's legitimate for nations today to be in covenant with God. That, that's, that in my mind, is, is difficult to substantiate. Yeah, because that's the second position, Andy, right? That those nations are not in covenant with God, right? Right. Uh, so... Boot, Wilson, were arguing it is possible, and they illustrate that with the UK, England, Scotland, etc. So that's just showing historically nations have done this. I think Steve's question is not just should we do that, can we do that? And uh, it seems like we can. I don't know if we should. And I'm definitely not convinced that the United States is under one of those kind of arrangements. I'm not sure how you'd explain that. Yeah, so I think one of the things that Andrew Walker says here is he's going to be in the negative camp. He's going to say, as I look at Scripture, I see no theological warrant for treating the apparatus of government itself as a mediator of the redemptive covenant. Right, and so certainly we would agree with that. And I would also say that those who are in position one here, even Boot and Wilson and others, are not saying that it is a redemptive covenant in the sense of the Old Testament covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. Even if there's a continuation, Steve, as you're bringing out with the coronation with the king— it seems as though it is a nation is recognizing God as the Lord, the God of the Bible is Lord, and then they themselves are making that covenant and committing themselves to the Lord. Seems to be the direction of what is taking place. And you do have models of that in Scripture, right? I mean, so when you have the covenant renewals, whether Hezekiah, Josiah, other times are taking place— The people of God are not fashioning for themselves a new covenant outside of, let's say, the Abrahamic Mosaic covenant covenant with Israel, but they're renewing that commitment. That seems to be something that is taking place there. And I think that's worth considering a bit more. But what gets tricky is you're now using the language of covenant in a way that is distinctive from the way that we think about the covenant. At least as progressive covenantalists, we're thinking about, you know, again, the biblical covenants that are there. And here is a covenant outside of that that a nation is affirming. Well, I mean, that, that, is, that, is the, that is the challenge, isn't it? I mean, all of those illustrations you give would be basically saying that nations today are in relation to God as Israel was. Mm-hmm. I mean, under 
those covenants. So, 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 I mean, when you think of Abrahamic, you think of Mosaic, you think of Davidic leading to the new covenant. I mean, as they work through scripture, they all culminate in the new covenant. They all culminate in the coming of Christ, the establishment of his people. There's continuity, obviously, with Old Testament saints and, and the people of God in the new, but it, it shows itself in the church. So the only way I can think that this would work would be to say that nations that are I think a post-fall phenomena that result and that are necessary until the end of the age. So I, I do believe in nations, not a globalism mm-hmm. uh, at this at this point in time in this uh, post-fall world before the coming of Christ, who will ultimately bring a global situation, but we need him to do it. So that you would have to say that nations then could acknowledge, creatures could acknowledge, image bears could acknowledge that God is the true God, and they would have to somehow something tied to Noahic structures, to creation structures, to say, uh, we want to follow the laws of God in that sense. I mean, if they're doing it in the true sense, they would all they would be repenting and believing in Christ and becoming part of the church. But if they're doing it in a regenerative sense, then they would be acknowledging that they're creatures, they're image bearers, and that we we want the creation orders and structures uh, to govern our society, and we want to follow God in that sense and acknowledge Him. That would be the only way I could envision this, because you couldn't appeal to the other covenants to say that this is what these nations are today. Yeah, well said. Andy, anything to add there? No. <laughs> Very good. Well, let's conclude just the last thing. Uh, Reflection 12, the interviewees all interacted as Christian gentlemen and modeled how to discuss political theology. Hopefully that's true. Yeah, the way I say it in this sentence, the interviewees are not like that. That is, they're not being jerks when they interact with David Schrock and friends. And my dad read a draft of this and he suggested I rephrase that sentence. And I said, no, I, I said it like that on purpose because sometimes they might act like jerks in other contexts. But in these (laughs) interviews, these particular interviews, they were Christian gentlemen, and I was commending them for that. Yeah. Well, it was a joy to be able to speak with all the brothers who came on for their willingness to spend time with us. And it just is a good reminder to us that I think many of our debate platforms that have been given to us over the last 15 years or so, man, just Twitter is not a good place to be able to to build conversations and face to face is always going to be better than than across you know barbs on the internet. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, do, it does reflect, doesn't it? Because you know, on on uh, Twitter or X or whatever they want to call it today, that some of these people and their interlocutors and so on are, can be quite strong with one another. But when you have to talk back. And not just throw out, you know, kind some kind of statement like road rage or something, uh, you know, X rage. It's more difficult to do that. So it's a reminder that we have to talk about these issues. We have to lay them out. We have to have discussions. We're doing it on, you know, an internet kind of context, but but even better face to face. And so much of uh, misunderstanding would be alleviated if we could actually continue these kind of conversations with one another. Well, and I think just, you know, a posture of wanting to understand, right? I mean, really wanting to understand the positions that are in. I mean, this is where I appreciated Brad Green so well, you know, taking the time to actually read thoroughly Stephen Wolf's book. And then again, with Mir Christendom with Doug Wilson and trying to actually ask questions to get in the in the shoes uh, of where these guys are coming from to understand why they're saying what they're saying. And even if we disagree at the end of the day, allowing them to fully articulate that was really part of the, the project that we had. And uh, hopefully it's, it's served people well. 
Well, brothers, I appreciate for the time uh, today. These are fruitful things. Andy, again, these uh, 12 reflections have been been helpful to kind of bring a, a capstone and uh, uh, summary to all that we have talked about for these last month and a half. Christ Oral is going to a, a more diverse set of articles in the month of December. So we're going to celebrate Christmas together with all kinds of different things, getting away from Christian nationalism, although I bet we might have a couple articles left in the in the queue coming up. But brothers, thank you guys for uh, for joining the conversation on Christ Overall today. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Andy, for the, the two articles. They've been really, really helpful in, in synthesizing and giving categories and, and allowing, uh, hopefully, uh, more conversations to take place and, and not just conversations, but cooperation together. Uh, as, as your reflection, one of your reflections there, I forget which one it was on, on we, you got to know what time it is. Uh, we live in a very precarious time. And instead of being shooting one another, we need to be working together. Even if there still are differences, boy, there's a lot of agreement and we need to be the church in, in our day, a prophetic voice and really praying that the Lord will, you know, bring revival and really stir up his people to be, be his people in today's world. Yeah, I hope a result of all this thinking about Christian nationalism would just be that guys and ladies would be motivated to be godly wives and moms and church members and cultivate a family that loves the Lord and have a Christian enculturation in your family for generations and be praying for your grandkids and great grandkids and have a healthy church and take the gospel to the nations and be the salt of the earth, light of the world in your vocation and everywhere you are. That's just that's the Christian life, and that's what I'm fired up to do when I think about these things. It's not just an academic exercise. It's, it's so we do that and focus on that. So I hope that's where people turn their energy. Yeah, well said, brother. Well said. And friends, thank you for listening to Christ Overall today. If you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, we have now more than two months of podcasts and articles addressing the subject of Christian nationalism. This month, the month of December, we'll have a few more articles on that subject as well. But we'll also be looking at a medley of edifying articles for Advent. Throughout 2023, we have made a number of new friends, and many of our articles in December will be coming to you from them. So stay tuned. We will also have podcasts coming up with Chris Bronze on the subject of forgiveness, a podcast with Trent Hunter and Kevin Briggins on the Great Society, and if we can wrangle all the guys from Christ overall, we will have one final roundup regarding Christian nationalism. In addition, we will have some new Christmas reflections in December, even as you can find an entire month of Advent reflections on our themes page from last December. You can go there to christoverall.com themes. That's it for now. And so until next time, remember that Christ is Lord over all. So in all things, let us exalt Christ. <laughs>